Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Lee Slusher, who is an international strategic security expert with over 20 years of analytical and operational experience supporting the U.S. intelligence community and special operations, as well as the private sector. Welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Lee. Thank you. Happy to be here. We uh, So you're starting to get popular, uh, Lee, now on the podcast circuit, uh, but you and I first talked uh, last year on uh, my uh, TNT radio program, I think November 20, uh, 2022, and the link is in the description. And uh, again, I highly recommend people go back and listen to our first conversation. And uh, you gave us a bit of your background there. Uh, and so, um, again, I'm going to include your links and, and everything and people can uh, l listen to your uh, explanation uh, previously. And, and I sort of want to get, you know, suffice to say, you've got an extensive background uh, in the military industrial complex. And so mm -hmm. I, I wanted to get your big picture take on the changing world uh, order. I often examine the status of the Western Empire or Western World Order, aka, aka Pax Americana, to sort of size up how it's doing its health. Then I tend to look at the rest of the world, you know, BRICS plus the multipolar world. Uh, and then I look at things like wars and military conflict, globalism, elites, and technocracy. But maybe to start, you know, to get your assessment of the state of things in the US, EU, NATO sphere, uh, there's economic problems you know the debt ceiling dollar inflation hyperinflation there's the threat of balkanization of, of the u.s that's being mm -hmm. uh, talked about and i think some conservatives are even falling for this idea uh you know christian nationalism and national divorce and for me i think it's always an elite tactic to balkanize and divide nations and and, and powers and we're even getting a little banana republic uh republic uh, with the uh, establishment going after Donald Trump with this senseless lawfare while corrupt officials like the Bidens seem to have immunity. So maybe to start with your your thoughts on the overall overall health of the West and, and what you see going on there. Sure. Uh, I would judge the overall health of the West as poor. Uh, the status quo that you know some might say it began after World War II, but I think uh, we could focus more specifically on the post-Cold War era. That status quo, uh, the, the architects and administrators of that worldview, they're failing. And what we're watching now is the pieces of uh, the system that they built fall apart, uh, some slowly, some not so slowly. So I think the clearest place to observe that, of course, is in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine, with the war there. I've written about it quite a bit. Uh, that was uh, just, just a fool's errand on an unbelievable uh, level. So Russia is building up a tremendous military force after having gone into light. And this force, of course, uh, didn't mean to rhyme there, they, uh, they don't know if they have to fight only the Ukrainians or if there's going to be a Western intervention. Many Western leaders have called for uh, either a NATO or a coalition of the willing intervention. Uh, we don't know if that would happen and what, what shape it might take. Others have called for regime change or even the dismemberment of Russia. So this force Russia is building up now, people kind of question what they're doing because there haven't been any big moves yet. They have to have enough force in place to be able to deal not only with Ukraine, but with a potential intervention. So that's building right now. Uh, my broader view on NATO, I'm writing a series about it now. The first piece is out. The series is called Collective Offense, you know, play on collective defense. And the subtitle is something like uh, Interventionism Set the Stage for NATO's Demise. So that's that's my view on NATO. I think 
It's largely on the way out. There's a lot of discord within the alliance. And, you know, it's it's not really, it's it's almost been a bit of a, a joke for quite a long time. Most of the military capabilities reside in, in the U.S., not in the European militaries. I worked with NATO for years. Uh, I did meet some very interesting people, had great coffee. Uh, it was all fun, but it wasn't much of a military alliance. It was the U.S. and then some token elements from European militaries that are so denuded over the past 30 years that they can't really do much. Now, there are uh, very skilled professionals in those armies. There just aren't that many, and they don't have the stuff they would need to conduct any extensive operations on their own. And the U.S. military, of course, has, has problems of its own. So this could take several shapes. You know, I, I, I don't know whether there's some kind of precipitous end, you know, when the Ukraine calamity finally comes to an end. If, you know, we see all of these protests in Europe, do, do leader, do governments change and then people, you know, individual countries start to pull out? I, I don't know. Is, uh, is it the, the end brought about by um, some kind of clash, some escalation in the war, and then people decide they don't want to participate? I don't know. And the third possibility is, that over a longer period of time, uh, it just becomes something other than than what it was, right? It's a, it could be a you know a Western Roman Empire kind of thing, um, but I don't. I think NATO has seen its its heyday, and I really have similar views on the EU. I think people. I know you and I have uh, the same opinion of the EU, but I'm more concerned with the opinion of the people in the EU. And I think when we look at the typical problems people mention about uh, expanding too fast and you know some of the the migration and there are issues over sovereignty and to what extent uh, the culture and identity of individual nations uh, should continue versus an you know an ever greater union i think those dangers are greatly understated at least uh, among the establishment um, and then when we look at the the primary draw of the eu at least to me, for, for many people, was economic. I mean, in, in the aftermath of the Cold War, of course, people wanted to be pulled in uh, to the, the winning side, the prosperous side. Nobody wants to be in this country that's like uh, the land that time forgot. Um, so that, But that economic draw, I think, is under uh, severe strain. So Germany, of course, is the economic powerhouse of Europe, and its economy was largely predicated upon this steady supply of cheap gas, which came largely from Russia. Without it, I don't, you know, I don't have a background in economics or finance, but it's a simple question. How do they replace that cheap energy and still maintain competitiveness in markets? We've already seen some deindustrialization. It's not a swift process. It's sort of a slow slide. And I think that's going to mean hard times for a lot of the people in Europe. And with that, and along with some of the other troubles, I think the appeal of it um, is, and its ability to, to help some of its member nations will decline uh, pretty markedly. So on what timeline all of this happens, simply don't know. But I don't see how any of that gets turned around. Yeah, and it's yeah, it, it's funny. We do share similar views. Uh, I'm an EU, uh, an unwitting uh, EU uh, citizen, and I'm not happy uh, with that. I view it as a totalitarian sort of construct uh you know a, a globalist construct i had a guest on recently you know eu is the lab they've said it themselves the eu is a laboratory for world uh governments and you mentioned nato i had a guest on a couple of years back patrick armstrong canadian uh diplomat who's who said the same thing as as you he called nato i think like a paper not just a paper tiger paper pussycat or something and um it's it's interesting though 
I, I think because the globalists also want to bring about an EU army. So maybe, as you say, NATO becomes less important and then they try to bring about this EU army. But uh, just this morning, I was reading headlines. I mean, uh, NATO is trying to expand into the, into the Pacific with like an Asian NATO. They're arming uh, the Japanese and, and the Koreans. They want the, the South Korea to get nukes and install all of these missile defense uh, systems. And someone made a good point. I mean, where is the Pacific? in the north atlantic uh uh treaty organization so i uh, what are your thoughts and, and you know they're trying to expand to the whole planet i mean my view is that nato from its outset like the goal was it to, for it to be a, like a global police force or military because <laughs> they're coming into latin america with uh i think colombia is a nato global partner uh, and mm -hmm. they've, been, they've been trying to onboard others and so you know any further thoughts on as you say even though they've seen their heyday but they're still trying to uh, expand mm -hmm. what do you, what do you make of that um yeah i think of nato uh, based on my experiences similar to the eu as a, a source of sinecures for the credentialed so it's it's jobs for cosmopolitans the people who want to be able to hop around all of these different cities and they're going to make hay wherever they go they're going to make agreements and have conferences and all of that it's a question of what actual capability they have and again militarily most of that capability resides in the US which has its own military problems we can get into or not um but this this push in NATO's most recent, uh, I can't remember the exact title, but it's like strategic posture, essentially. You know, it mentioned China and the need to somehow counter China, and I guess through a heretofore unknown passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific, I, if it's not part of the North Atlantic, as you said. Um, most of it has just been really uh, farcical. Like, for example, uh, Burrell uh, said that, you know, maybe the EU ought to send ships into the Taiwan Strait to deter China. I mean, that's that's just fanciful thinking. It's out of this world ridiculous. Like what what they don't have any military capability. Uh, like you mentioned, this idea of an EU force. They've talked about that for a long time. My basic view on that is it really stems from some hurt feelings, primarily among the French, but also among some others that they consistently have to rely on the U.S. military and that they don't have sufficient defenses of their own. I don't foresee them making anything uh, noteworthy in that, uh, any noteworthy advances on that front in the near future. Um, I think there's some a lot of bureaucratic inertia going on here, too. Just as NATO was, you know, it had existed for decades before the end of the Cold War, you know, the, the type of people drawn to government already had this construct in place with people and facilities and communications networks and all of that. And so the tendency was to kind of expand on that. And now as their ambitions are, are wider, they're really just trying to do the same thing. What, what's noteworthy, I think, is the lack of an organic uh, analog to NATO in the Pacific with strong support from those nations. I mean, we don't see those nations coming along and building anything like that. We see NATO trying to stick its nose under the tent. So I don't really think they'll have a, a tremendous amount of success on that front. Maybe to jump back to Ukraine and Russia for a moment, uh, and as you sort of mentioned, we don't know exactly if things will escalate or whatnot, but maybe to get your thoughts on what I'll call like the new Russian uh, order. And, you know, we we follow a lot of the same people and I try to uh follow different sources and, and get different perspectives but recently what's been interesting for me i've been 
looking at listening to some Russian nationalists who are very critical of Russia because in the you know Western alternative media they kind of seem to be I feel exaggerating or hyping up uh, Russia's uh, status or, or or power and then you have Russian na- nationalists who are pro Russia but they see a lot of corruption uh, maybe in some cases ineptitude. Uh, and weakness in in Russia. Recently, we had the head of Wagner Group, Prigozhin, come out with these crazy mm-hmm. videos where he's yelling at Shoigu and Kerasimov. Uh, the the uh, what do they call it? The ammo hunger, a uh, shell hunger. Seventy percent of it, they're missing, and th- things like this. How you know? How would you sort of assess? Uh, you know, it, the, the state of Russia now, and maybe going forward, if they win in, in, in Ukraine, how powerful do you feel Russia, uh, Putin and company are? Sure. Uh, well, I agree first that you said the West tends to um, inflate the threat when they say things like, oh, Russia won't stop in, in Ukraine. They're, they'll keep going you know, throughout Europe and elsewhere in the world. That's nonsense. When we talk about capabilities, we also have to talk about limitations because they're two sides of the same coin. Um, in terms of, you know, Prigozhin and all these other people, I really wouldn't pay, broadly speaking, I don't try to read too much into a single incident, whether it's something like that, a speech, a meeting, an attack, it, most of those incidents don't have much broader significance. But in this case, my best guess is that it was just more deception. Fill the information space with nonsense. Make people think about that. Uh, I mean, Ukraine then sent more soldiers into the meat grinder after that. So that's that's my take on uh, on what he did down there. As far as the nationalists, there is there is a bit of a tradition of using some of the 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 more extreme Russian nationalists as kind of trial balloons to test public sentiment or to see like how far could the Kremlin go in a particular direction. And so some of those people are allowed to operate, I think, for that purpose, say something that's more extreme than what the Kremlin is doing, and then kind of gauge as if that's what the people want. Um, I don't, I think Russia's power is primarily in Russia and along the periphery um, in terms of its ability to really coerce. So, and beyond that, I mean, for example, the the deployment to Syria was was a pretty heavy lift for them in terms of an, an out of area operation. So I think they remain largely focused uh, domestically and along the periphery. And then maybe to move to their partners, uh, China, Xi Jinping and 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 company. And there's talk uh, again of Taiwan becoming a new Ukraine. I think Biden's going to send 500 million again to Taiwan. Uh, again, and I'm reading things like special operations are being prepped for uh, you know, headline li- literally said for like a Ukraine style situation in Taiwan. Uh, a couple uh, last month, I was in LA at a conference titled World, World War Three, the early years. Brigadier General Robert Spaulding spoke there. And it was interesting where he said that uh, and he was a DOD guy in, in China. They sent him there and he was saying that basically the U.S. cannot um there's no time anymore for the U.S. to sort of remilitarize uh, conventionally. Uh, China is speeding a- ahead. And on Taiwan, he said that it's like we can't do anything. The best we, w- we could do is evacuate uh, Taiwanese. I mean, th- that's kind of what he was saying. And so w- what thoughts, you know, if we put Russia aside and, and the D.C. seems to be focusing more on China now, what, what are your thoughts on what's going on with the, the rise of China? Uh, and and mil- possible military conflict uh, with uh, over Taiwan. 
Well, focus uh, on Taiwan first, because I worked there off and on for a few years with their defense folks. Um, I agree with what Spalding said, and uh, it probably angers some of my old colleagues for me to say that publicly, but we don't have the defense capacity we used to. We don't have the defense industrial base we used to have. We've more or less exhausted many of our capabilities just supporting Ukraine. And when we look at why, you know, think back to World War II when Detroit got uh, basically turned into a giant munitions factory. And the same was true of other factories all over the country. But we don't have many of those factories anymore. We, you know, we, we've uh, gotten rid of a lot of our manufacturing. So even if we were to enact the Defense Production Act, uh, we don't have the same industrial base to support that kind of production, but also, you know, we're in this inflationary debt-ridden environment. Where how much are we going to print? And are the because it would be a monumental amount, far more than we've spent on COVID and all the rest. Are the people actually even behind that? I mean, it's one thing when you turn on the news and you see people bickering about, you know, foreign places. Americans unfortunately have become used to that and to our forces being elsewhere, but we simply don't have the capacity, like just look at it logistically. Even if we were to invoke the Defense Production Act and start ramping up and building up supplies, it would take a very long time to have enough just to initiate a conflict, much less to sustain one. And then we look at geography. I mean, it's an island roughly a hundred miles off the coast of China. Our power does not reside in East Asia. I don't, um, I'm aware of the the challenges China would do. Let me say first, I don't believe China wants to invade Taiwan. They want eventual peaceful reunification. I think they certainly would invade if we were to provoke them in that direction, because China is near and dear, or uh, Taiwan is near and dear to China, much like Ukraine is to Russia. So I think if there's militarization there around the island, I understand it would be a really heavy lift for the PLA. They haven't been to war in a long time. They haven't conducted this kind of operation. Amphibious operations are incredibly difficult and on Taiwan even more so, but I really think that ultimately the advantage is theirs. I mean, there, there's no land border across which to funnel weapons, not that we even have the same volume of them anymore or that we could even produce them quickly anymore. So I think on that front, it's really uh, just very dangerous nonsense. Um, as far as uh, I think there really needs to be some kind of accommodation like what what is their role in the world and what is ours because uh, thus far we, we operate a lot without really sound uh, strategy and, and in particular without strategy that matches up with our capabilities and, and you know just uh, another aspect of everything we're looking at I mean you just mentioned some of the, the, the military um, the capacity that we have or, or, or don't have geography. And then another big part that plays into all of this, of course, is the economic, the, the dollar status as, as world reserve, where uh, again, if you don't have that, you don't have the, the military part. And, um, there's this de-dollarization that we see going on. I just read yesterday, Pakistan wants to buy Russian oil or energy in Chinese yuan. Russia was having troubles uh, with the Indian rupees. They've got no nowhere to put the uh, rupees, or the, the, you know that that was uh, a problem. So they are having issues. Uh, the multipolar world, and some people say, you know, it doesn't mean the dollar is going to disappear. It'll, you know, it'll just m maybe mean it'll be, you know, one currency among uh, many. And I don't think it necessarily means that 
if the dollar is replaced, the, the petro, the, the yuan will become the world reserve. Maybe the Chinese don't even want that. You know, maybe we won't have a world reserve or maybe it'll fall to like a international institution like IMF, SDR, special drawing right or something. But w- what do you make um, on the economic front, the de-dollarization process and then the ganging together of the rest of the world, basically BRICS plus multi multipolar world, global south and, and, and the rhetoric. We're seeing a lot of rhetoric coming from the the you know the, the third world or global south that has for, for so long been bullied by the west and now they're becoming more and more um confident to speak out against the west you had an uh, indian billionaire recently say the dollar is you know uh, economic uh terrorism uh and so forth so what are, what are some of your thoughts here i think what's significant is that they're it's not just noise they're making some real steps in that direction uh, I'm not in a position to jive. I've listened to so many people who know so much more about this than I do disagree entirely on dollarization or de-dollarization. Um, I think it's all very interesting, but to the extent it continues, I, I don't quite know. But what I think is very significant is that they're making steps in that direction. They're making alliances. A greater number of countries wish to join BRICS or wish to find alternatives to the Western dominated system. So I, I think it's probably a more of a slower process, but one one that is definitely underway. And it seems like it's underway in uh, very quickly. Like each day or each week, there are new stories or stories about you know, Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, normalizing. I mean, all sorts of things that are likely good for those regions. Uh, that certainly would be good if, if those two countries weren't uh, at odds. Um, I think it's underway. I know there's a lot of debate among policy wonks. You know, is this the start of the multipolar world? Is it a bipolar world? I'm not terribly concerned with those debates. I think what we can say definitively is that the old one is on its way out. And that in that uh, in that void, all of these countries are trying to build something of their own. And uh, like you said, after having been at the mercy of, uh, or lack of mercy, it's in some instances of uh, Western-dominated systems. Are are there other flashpoints that you're uh, looking at? We saw yesterday Imran Khan uh, arrested and people going nuts in Pakistan, and then analysts saying that you know if P- Pakistan becomes destabilized, that could be a, a major global crisis they've got nukes they could fall into civil uh war uh i'm also looking at hungary for example i feel i had guests on my uh, tnt show many months back uh gavin wax and nathan Ber- nathan berger of the young new york young republics republicans club who've been writing op-eds for a newsweek where they, they called it the paprika revolution color revolution in hungary mm-hmm. you've got uh, samantha powers usaid they're going strong just a couple days ago i saw um it was clear that they're attempting this color revolution because uh there was this it's the usual suspects these very pro-western journals and ngos and they tweeted um that some uh hungarian opposition was a guy was arrested you know nothing serious and a lot of students out on the streets it's the typical color color revolution model and a lot of nafo nato bots in the thread which that's clear then what they're attempting to do and so um you know those are some of the things that i'm looking at so what are other you know flashpoints around the world that you're interested in well i'm also following hungary um that's very interesting of course and it's not just usaid you know the samantha power thing was interesting because 
The director of USAID does not normally go out and put uh, his or her personal face on the camera for an effort like that. If they do, it's a photo op because there's an important meeting in country with a you know a national leader. That's not what happened. You know, the USAID is using its influence over there. Um, I think to undermine a democratically elected government. Uh, there was recently the sanctions leveled against a Hungarian uh, a banks. Uh, I can't remember how many banks operating in Hungary. And I suspect we're going to see the same thing. There'll be different weapons employed. Uh, the, the pain will increase. Um, mostly I do focus on Eurasia and uh, to a lesser extent, East Asia. Uh, since we're here speaking, uh, I from the US and you from Mexico, I think at some point uh, the cartel related activity is going to come to a head there, um, unfortunately, because the, the cartels are operating freely on both sides of the border. Of course, tomorrow Title 42 expires and the, the flood of migrants into the US will grow. And uh, there's been a lot more crime on, on our side of the border too. Uh, of course, not in comparison to what's happened in Mexico, but I think that situation is going to get out of hand and I, I'm not necessarily to the point of a military intervention, but some kind of security force on the border or something like that. Um, in terms of uh, outside of Europe, oh, go ahead. maybe just on that point, because that's been interesting for me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm also a proud Mexican uh, <laughs> citizen. And I've been tracking this stuff. And yeah, it's as you mentioned, it's it's cartel territory in Mexico. It's not, you know, in some ways, it's not as bad as the American media hypes it out to be. But it's not like the pro there's no problem here. So, you know, there, there's a nuance where, yeah, it's an issue. You got to be careful um, in Mexico. But it's not like, you know, you, you come here for vacation, you're going to die or be kidnapped uh, automatically. I, I, when people ask me, like, I've been here for over a decade, I'm still alive. And pretty much uh, everyone I know is still alive. So I guess mm -hmm. that's a simple litmus test. But uh, we're seeing American politicians now like Crenshaw, Lindsey Graham. Uh, I can't rem remember uh, all of them trying to now classify cartels as terrorists and, you know, send U.S. troops into Mexico. And given the history, I mean, this is very uh, sensitive. And you've got AMLO, the Mexican president, coming out. He recently actually sent a memo a couple of days ago saying, telling the Biden administration to stop USAID from financing the Mexican uh, opposition. And then he's saying that the Pentagon and the EA is spying on Mexican, um, you know, uh, the government institutions. And then Jefferson Morley, who I've, who's been on my podcast and was on TNT recently on my show, uh, discussing the revelation that a, f a new declassified document showed that a fourth Mexican president in the 70s and 80s had been a CIA asset or CIA um, uh, agent. So, I mean, uh, that's a lot of fascinating stuff, but you don't think that, you know, U.S. troops will get into Mexico and we can see some oh. some sort of big uh, war or civil war or b a bigger conflict uh, explode? Oh, no, I, I was speaking from a position of hope that it, it need not be a full-on war. Uh, it certainly could be. At the very least, there needs to be some kind of security on the border, regardless of one's view of immigration. You know, governments have not only a right, but a responsibility to, to regulate, uh, you know, border control, border access. Um, I think that drumbeat will continue to get uh, far worse as, you know, even greater numbers of people come into the U.S., uh, illegally, the the economic situation here is not great. Um, you know there are impossible 
sums of debt at every level from the individual to the sovereign. Uh, there aren't many uh, opportunities for the sort of growth that could get rid of that. Uh, most of the growth that we see, if we look at GDP, of course, is concentrated way up high in the top end. So I think that this influx of people is going to aggravate a whole bunch of other problems if it, you know, because of the, the simple volume. Um, and then the, the fentanyl crisis, things like that. Uh, unfortunately, I know you mentioned uh, Graham and Crenshaw. I'm, I'm not uh, a big fan of either, but it very, it very well could get into some kind of military situation. I mean, hopefully we could resolve it with uh, security operations and some bilateral stuff with the Mexican government. Yeah, it's I mean, I, I'd agree with you. I mean, it's you, you can't have this flood of migration. I mean, it's it's just too much for any country. And I've had guests on in the past, uh, Alex Craner, fellow mm -hmm. Spanish speaking Croat, uh, who's out in Monaco, who served in the Croatian uh army i think he i remember him in a past interview commenting that you know mass migration is actually like a military tactic no mm -hmm. you, know, you know whoever's allowing this to happen you're you're it's an attack on the united states just as you mentioned on the economy mm -hmm. culturally um in in many different ways and i think it plays into sort of breaking down the u.s and i would view that more as a globalist you know who's who's got the interest there globalists in my view and it's is that divide and conquer strategy which we've seen in all over the place you know in yugoslavia and in iraq uh sudan and everywhere else and do you have any thoughts on the elites uh in general uh whatever you want to call them you know world economic forum globalists uh transnational um interests or or whatnot sure uh, well they're certainly there I mean, some people like to deny that fact. I mean, the fact that powerful people, both in government and industry and media, get together, I mean, that's just the way of the world. But at the moment, their influence or their interests seem to align uh, perhaps much more than at other times. And the power seems to be consolidated. It certainly, you mentioned mass migration. Um, I mean, that's consistent with any uh, material we can find from the organizations they support. I mean, it's a, it's a stated goal. I think there are, um, hope I don't insult anybody, uh, very compassionate people who probably serve as useful idiots to that end uh, in the activist community who, are, who whose hearts are in the right place, but perhaps not their heads. Um, yeah, I, I only recently around the time of the pandemic started to get more into the, the content that you speak about a lot. Up until then, I'd focused much more on specific countries and on military matters and things like that. Uh, yeah, I think all of that is is probably ongoing. Um, it's pretty frightening. It's it's pretty unsettling. Yeah, and I think it's it's something we have to factor in into trying to understand what's going on because it's like a it, for me it's it's created these different axes, horizontal, vertical. Where on in, in your traditional realm of trying to understand the grand chessboard to borrow brzezinski's term uh you do see these nationalist level geopolitical conflicts between east and west as we've discussed in ukraine right russia and, and, and china that's for sure going on but then we see strange things like uh you know globalist penetration where russia and china are implementing some of these technocratic uh controls and then mm -hmm. how, how do we kind of square that and i 
I don't have an answer. Uh, and, you know, it's, 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 as you kind of said, it's, it's elusive to figure out what's going on. Are they just playing along? Uh, are they going to drop them at some point? Uh, again, it's a, a lot of questions and maybe, um, yeah, on, on that end as well, just the, the general theme of increased authoritarian, authoritarianism and tyranny that we're seeing in the West. Uh, and, you know, these, I, what I call the algorithm ghetto. I mean, you know, I'm banned on PayPal and, um, Patreon people are, are having bank accounts shut now I, in the West. You know, Alina Lip, the German journalist, had her bank account uh, in Germany shut and her parents' bank account, who had nothing to do with uh, anything. And, you know, and, and the, you know, the crazy censorship that we're seeing. So you have any thoughts mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, on this sort of trend in the West? Yeah, going, going back to what you said a moment ago, uh, we, we see some of these things in other parts of the world and are they connected or not? I think not necessarily because the, the goal on all fronts is greater control and the means of control available to the people we're talking about, the, you know, the globalists are the same means of control available to, to Moscow and, and Beijing and such. So there, there are only so many ways to go about that, particularly with the kind of latest technology. Um, I agree entirely. I, I'm really still shocked at the, the loss of liberty and the this uh, explosion of authoritarianism in the west i mean the the trucker protest in canada I mean, they were they weren't even i mean it was bad enough of course that they were going after the truckers and their insurers and all of that they were going after people who offered you know food or, or drinks to the the protesters so i'm my wife and i discussed this often we're still bewildered i mean at, at this onslaught uh, it's not the country i remember from uh, the eighties and nineties for sure. Um, I think the, whether this is connected to some global scheme, I don't know, but I think the U S federal government is definitely out of control and we can probably put the department of justice, uh, right up there among the, you know, the, the top troublemakers. I, I don't think they're enforcing the law, uh, impartially or, or evenly in any way. Um, I don't know that I have any insight other than I, I certainly see it. And uh, it's a it's a huge problem, more so than anyone in the establishment's letting on, of course. Yeah, I've been to Canada many times, spent uh, months there, and just after what happened, as you mentioned, with the uh, in the recent years, I just have I've been completely turned off. I've got absolutely no desire again to go to Canada. I've met so many Canadians that have fled to uh, Mexico. I've interviewed. Mm -hmm. uh, a whole mantra of, you know, the uh, Canadian pastors, Pawlowski on the, the podcast on TNT, Pastor Hildebrandt, uh, Daniel Bulford on my TNT show, former RCMP, whose job was to protect uh, Trudeau. He quit because he refused to take the, what I call, Pentagon uh, juice. And um, then I guess going forward, um, you know, if you got any final thoughts, uh, you know, it, it seems like you, you think we're going to avoid World War Three or nuclear escalation, uh, uh, you, or what are your no, thoughts? No, no, um, I was trying not to go over too much of the material we had discussed before or that I had discussed in other uh, shows, but uh, no, I do not think we can skip over that. I think the war, uh, going back to Ukraine, I think there are two possibilities. One is a Western intervention, uh, in which case all bets are off because nobody can reasonably uh, control escalation in that environment. And the second is a Russian victory that allows Russia to set the terms for peace. So who knows which one we get? Uh, so no, I, I'm not uh, I'm not rosy uh, on that front. 
Um, and in terms of this sort of tide of, of tyranny in, in many places, I don't see a whole lot stopping it. I, I don't think it's getting better. Uh, it's certainly getting worse here. Um, I, I do remain, I still have faith in the American people. I mean, faith in the literal sense of uh, sort of a belief without, uh, you know, observable evidence that, that people would uh, ultimately stand up or change something. But my overall, I mean, I know you're a fourth turning fan, right? I think you are anyway. Got the book uh, behind me somewhere. Uh, yep, yeah. I, I do too out there. Yeah. So I, I think that pretty accurately describes the period we're experiencing, um, or at least that framework is good for examining it. And it says it can go one of either ways. Like it can get, you know, there can be a cleansing or it can get much worse. And I am uh, wholly undecided on what I think, uh, which way I think it's going to go. Um. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair assessment. And I, I feel the same. Like, uh, I mean, there are other commentators, podcasters out there who are more firm on their projections. But uh, I mean, who can really tell uh, the future, uh, you know, to that uh, extent? And just on Ukraine, uh, you know, maybe that that latter scenario you, you, you painted, we might be moving towards that. We had globalist Kissinger come out just a couple of days ago saying, you know, maybe we'll start having talks at, by the end of the year with the Chinese uh, involved. So that's that's some hope there, no? Well, here, here's what I think of what's going on there. The West with the U.S. At, at the lead has been just lying nonstop about the war, about Ukraine's ability to win the war, which never they never had such a capability to begin with. And uh, eventually that lie wasn't going to hold. So if you go back to January, when there was that big meeting of all the contributing countries at Ramstein in Germany, all the stories in the media were, you know, this, this immense weapons package, surely with this, it'll push Ukraine over the top. A couple months later, it's, well, we don't know if we can keep supplying all these weapons. And then a couple months later, it's, well, this, this next offensive or counteroffensive might be make or break for Ukraine. So they're, I think they're clearly trying to sensitize the population to the fact that the ultimate outcome isn't going to be the one they promised. You know, as long as there isn't a Western intervention that leads to who knows what, um, it'll be Russia settling the war on its terms. And so they're trying to sensitize us to that. Um, yeah, that's. I mean, that, that's a, that's still, it's, it's a positive thing. Uh, you know, hopefully we get out of this without Dr. Strange love, you know, nukes <laughs> going yeah. off. Uh, uh, any final uh, thought for us? And then if you want to uh, tell us where's the best places we can find your stuff. Uh, no, I, like you said, I was recently on uh, some other shows and, and talked about the similar things, but in much greater detail. Uh, my website is lee-bt.com, so L-E-E-B as in Bravo, T as in Tango.com. Uh, my substack is deepdivewithleeslusher.substack.com, uh, and then I'm on Twitter, um, Lee Slusher. I can't remember my exact handle offhand, but make sure you have it. Yeah, all the links are in the description. I'll also include the links with your talks with uh, on Tommy's podcast, and I think uh, Marty, Marty Bent, and so yeah, TFTC. Uh, that was a like a ninety minute one. It was yeah. So I'll, I'll, yeah, we I'll, we got a, covered a lot of ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm sure we'll talk again either uh, on geopolitics and empire or plugging my other job TNT. <laughs> uh, happy uh, to talk to you again. Yeah, thanks for being on. 
I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.